Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So if you watch any science fiction movies at all, then you know about traveling at light speed. I don't know about you, but do you remember that moment, how revolutionary it was in the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, when they actually made the jump to hyperspace and kind of showed it? It's become the norm on screen now, but that was a big deal. It's not exactly the norm in real life, though, right? It may seem like a done deal when we watch it on the big screen, not so much in the actual scientific world. But Dr. Ethan Siegel is an astrophysicist and author of Starts with a Bang and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Good morning, Vancouver. <laughs> Good morning. Now, Dr. Siegel, if you watch any movie, it sure seems like we can travel at light speed, right? I mean, in fear, in in the terms we're used to, that's the limit, right? Your normal matter, you and me, we're made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. We can get close to, but never quite reach the speed of light, just like normal matter does. And so you might think, yeah, that's going to be the way it is forever and ever. But I'm not so convinced, and a lot of other astrophysicists are not convinced that's the ultimate limit either. Why? Well, think about it, right? We have our entire laws of physics that we know, the laws of motion, gravity, all of this, less than 500 years old. If you think ahead to the far future of what an advanced alien civilization could be like, or maybe what humanity will be like in thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years... Couldn't there be more things we would discover? Maybe we would discover it's not just massive and massless particles like us and like photons that we have. Maybe there are theoretical particles that are real called tachyons. And if you were a tachyon made of imaginary mass, well, you wouldn't be able to travel slower than light at all. As you went faster and faster, you got more and more energy, you'd approach the speed of light from above And if you slowed down and lost that energy, you'd wind up going faster and faster, approaching infinite speed. Who knows if that will be discovered? Who knows what will happen if you can find what we call a negative energy state where you can distort the fabric of space to create, just like Star Trek, uh-huh. some type of warp drive. I knew it. That was my there next were... question, Dr. Siegel. Was, are you talking about like warp speed like in Star Trek? Imagine imagine space as like a sheet of paper, right? You think, oh, if I want to go from point A to point B, I've got to go that whole distance between them. I could draw a straight line or a curved line, but no matter what, I've still got to go from A to B. Not necessarily true in Einstein's theory of gravity. 
if you imagine that space is like a sheet of paper and you can curve it, maybe there's a shortcut where you could fold that piece of paper and connect point A to B directly. That's what we call a wormhole. You can connect these disconnected regions of space. And if we can figure out how to manipulate space, if we can figure out how to trigger gravity to do something like this, maybe you could take these shortcuts. How do you even work on this? Tell me about your work. You know, it's really funny. Like, this is the sort of thing that you learn about when you're learning Einstein's theory of general relativity in grad school. And most of us say, well, let's just apply this to the systems we already know. Let's apply this to the astrophysical things we've already found in the universe. But there are other ways to do it, too, and say, why don't we play what if? Why don't we say, hey, we have the laws of physics, and they don't tell us how things have to be distributed, how the, the universe and the matter within it has to work. So let's imagine what could be if you have a negative energy state, or if you could curve space like this, or even if you can make what we call a closed time-like loop, where you don't just return to your starting point in space, but in time, too. Imagine going forward, doing all these things all over the universe, and then coming back to you right now on the phone with me. After going through all of that, you'd be able to say, oh, guess what I found out? And look at where you've been, look at where you've gone, and look at what you've been able to accomplish. And imagine being able to do that and coming back to not only right here, but right now. Okay, all now of these things are possible in Einstein's theory, and maybe, just maybe, aliens somewhere have already achieved these milestones. Okay, now you are kind of blowing my mind. This sounds like, you know, the, yeah, the stuff of science fiction. So, Dr. Siegel, are, are people working on this? How far away are we from a breakthrough like that? You know, in some ways, we're still in the theoretical stage. There have people, we have people doing experiments, trying to test these. And so far, uh, you know, we don't have anything compelling. But this is the important thing about science. If you go back 100 years, wouldn't something like GPS seemed impossible? If you had gone back 200 years, wouldn't something like electricity have seemed impossible? If you went back only 70 years, wouldn't have something like an MRI machine seemed impossible? So when we talk not just, oh, imagine 10 years, 20 years, 100 years in the future, imagine thousands of years in the future. Do you really think we won't have discovered new laws and properties and particles in physics? I, I think that there are still wonderful things out there to be discovered. And when you have that possibility, you have to say, well, let's not be bound by what we know today. There's a very good chance that what we know today is going to be superseded by new knowledge in the future. And for that, you have to keep your minds open. And there are plenty of us who feel exactly this way, who are working on these things to make tomorrow's science tomorrow's reality. Dr. Siegel, I always wonder this when I, I talk to incredibly smart people like yourself, and that is, do we imagine it first? You know, do we invent it, you know, in Star Trek and see that and then raise a generation of scientists who think, I wonder if we could actually do that? And, and, and it comes kind of full circle? You know, that's, that's a way to get into it. That's a way a lot of people wind up getting into it. But my story is exactly the opposite. I got into this because I was looking at the science and I said, wow, 
look at all of these possibilities. And then I would see the fiction and I would say, oh, look, someone's been inspired by these possibilities and they've gone and made this. You know, we talk about wormholes like it came out of science fiction. It didn't in the 1930s. It came out of a scientific paper written by Einstein himself along with his then graduate student, Nathan Rosen. And they made what was called an Einstein-Rosen bridge which is the inspiration for today's wormhole. So while we think often, oh, we imagined it in science fiction and then it became tomorrow's reality, the truth is often the other way around, that actually some scientists thought of it first and said, here's what's possible, and then someone who was interested in writing science fiction took that and incorporated it into their work. So sometimes it is science fiction that inspires what we're going to build in science, and I think the cell phone, for example, was a great example of that. But other times, like in the case of warp drive or wormholes, it's science that imagined it, and now it's science fiction that inspired us to try and make it a reality. I love it. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, and good morning, Vancouver. Enjoy. (laughs) Good morning to you. That's Dr. Ethan Siegel, astrophysicist and author of Starts with a Bang, talking about the theoretical concept of traveling faster than light speed and how it's being worked on, how it is theoretically possible. And we do see it, right, all the time in movies and TV, but there are people out there who are working on it. This is Mornings with Simi had a bit of a moment when this when we played this song because I thought why didn't Usher play this song yesterday our Scott Chance is with us now hi Scott that was are you okay excuse me I'm fine Monday, I'm fine Monday morning I'm good I'm fine it's Monday morning it's a big day yesterday uh that was exactly my thought when I heard that song yeah. is why wasn't this song played well, also why was that the first song that he played yes. coming right out of the gate and just let me just say can you believe that John Strait didn't know about the connection between Justin Bieber and Usher? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, like I, so I, lo- lots to talk about with the halftime show. Usher wasn't my choice, but I did think that if he brings out Justin Bieber, that will save this whole thing. It'll be no. epic. It'll be huge. I didn't require and- Justin Bieber if for for Usher to be huge because I'm, a, you know, I thought would have been great. I know he's a great performer. I was just looking forward to it. I didn't understand why he didn't play more like crazy dancing yes, songs like that one. Like that one. So I was uh, talking yesterday with um, on the weekend show with Phil Figueredo about what we were thinking was going to be the opening song, and there was lots of uh, People lots were of debate. Betting on this there on was like totally. Media, yeah. It ended up actually being this song. I'm so caught up. Sure, yeah, which, which was song, fine, but this. Yeah, DJ got us. That would have been yeah, so much better. And the fact that it didn't even make the list. And I mean, one thing that I knew was going to happen with the halftime show is that I would come back from it thinking, oh my gosh, yes, Usher, Usher has this huge catalog. I forgot he about does. all these songs. And of course, that is what happened. There's so many great songs. Alicia Keys was there. They did My Boo. Usher and, uh, sorry, Lil John and Ludacris, Ludacris were there for Yeah, fantastic. that was a great moment. But I think for me, Simi, like, yes, Usher is a great performer. I think I would need to see him at like, either Rogers Arena or smaller because so much of it is like the dancing and stuff and like if you're I don't it just feels like one guy when the thing is so big I like like 
the, the best Super Bowl show is Prince. Everybody knows that. Everybody agrees. Yes. I like a big rock band, big screen sort of, you know, non-choreographed. No, yeah. I, I, I can accept anything as long as it's a good show. For instance, I didn't know what to expect a couple of years back from J-Lo and Shakira. That show blew me out of the water. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, that was good. The Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg yep, Eminem one was good. good. Those were good. I also really liked Lady Gaga when she did it. Okay. I didn't like Madonna when Madonna did it, same. even though I love Madonna. Yeah. So I had high expectations because I know what a great performer Usher is and I, and I, you know, so many great songs. I just wish he had chosen stuff that would have really gotten the crowd into it. Yeah. One of the comments that I think summed it up was it just felt like one big, long slow jam, Yeah, you know, kind and of. And I get that, that Usher, that's what he's kind of known for. Yeah. Right. For the romance. But I don't know if that was the right mood for that. But can we talk about the commercials? Oh my gosh. So the, I watched some of the commercials on online because, you know, we have the SimSum regulations, so we don't get them all here in Canada. So they're all available online on a bunch of different places. And of course there's tons. Did you know what? 30 second commercial was 7 million dollars. Sure. And well worth it though, when you think about all the spinoff benefit, for instance, I don't think there was any better commercial than this next one we're going to play. And I would say that for Dunkin' Donuts to have spent $7 million upwards on this because of the people who are in it, money well spent. Oh yeah. And I hadn't seen this one and watched it this morning as we were getting ready and I couldn't stop laughing. This is so good. So just to give you a little bit of context, it's, we all, Ben Affleck loves Dunkin' Donuts. And the idea of this commercial is Jennifer Lopez is at a recording studio, recording an album and Ben Affleck shows up to feature on his album with his new hip hop group called the Dunkings. Like Duncan Dunkings. He's here. Ah, flat on the track. What up, Bronx? For your consideration, here comes the Boston Massacre. The Dunkings. Touchdown, Tommy on them keys. Player coach. Got it. I'm open. And need no introduction, my partner. Sometimes it's really hard to be your friend. You said you were going to support me. Dunkings. How do you like them donuts? I'm so sorry. You had to see it, but I forgive you. Lay us on the track. <laughs> it's just, it's so. Tom Brady. It's so great. Matt, Matt David Damon. Jack Harlow at the beginning. Yeah, it's so um, good. He, Jack Harlow doing, don't do this, man. Don't yeah, do this. Yeah, and he's like, no, I got to. I got to. She did it to me. I'm doing it for her. And he's so, he leans into the character so much, which I think is one of the reasons that I just love it. He's not trying to deny the fact that he loves this like trashy coffee. It's not trashy, but like this cheaper version of so coffee. I will say that because of Ben Affleck, I now know, like, you know, you know what Dunkin' Donuts is. I was was in Boston a couple summers ago for just a few days, first trip ever. And my, one of the things was I would like to go to Dunkin' Donuts oh, yeah. because I had never been before and I was pleasantly surprised. Oh yeah, I like it. I lived in New York for a little while, many years ago. It had never and, like, been went a priority Dunkin for every me. Every day. Yeah. Every day it was so good. And he's going viral because of the tracksuits that they wore in the, in the video. You can see it online. And uh, they're orange with say, like Boston on Loud. them. They're so great. You can buy them. They go on sale at 9 a.m. That Dunkin' Donuts is like pushing it. It's like 9 a.m. is the drop. They're going to sell out. Out. Like they're sure yes, to be they super expensive. And they've totally turned it into a thing. And it's like the fact that Tom Brady is in it is my favorite part. There's so actually fun. behind the scenes makings of this commercial too, of them throwing a football through a giant donut ring. And of course, Ben Affleck can't do it. Matt Damon can't do it. And Tom Brady does it every single time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so it's, they've clearly, whoever their ad agency is, or if Ben Affleck came like, whatever, genius. Absolutely. Genius. And you know, like the celebrity power of it, the sharing, the virality, what, what, the best thing would be if Jennifer Lopez actually has a feature from him on an album. 
that would be pretty funny. Yeah, that was a good one. Christopher Walken was funny. There were some good commercials. The Christopher there Walken one so. was great too. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger had the good one for. Oh, Neba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neba. Neba. That was great. Yeah, <laughs> always good with the. I mean, I don't even know. Well, I do know what the final score was, but everyone's talking about the commercials. No, I think also everybody's talking about the outcome of the game because going into overtime like that, pretty big deal. Pulling yeah. out the win after trailing for most of the game, also a big deal. Never doubt Patrick Mahomes. Apparently not. Apparently not. Scott, thank you. you got Got it. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. I wanted to ask you about Friday. First of all, if we could just go back in time for a moment. Sure. Uh, you were having some challenges <laughs> that that uh, you let me know about afterwards because we thought, what is going on with Vaughn? There was like loud noises and banging happening. What was going on? Well, I wish I'd said something on the air because it would have given the listener a good laugh, but maybe in retrospect, it'll still give the listener a good laugh. Um, we are babysitting my daughter's cat here in Victoria, and right in the middle of the live radio hit, the cat pushed the door open. <laughs> I hadn't secured it sufficiently well. She's an extremely affectionate cat, and she leapt up on the keyboard of the computer, purring and rubbing up against me. And not only did I lose my thread and my thought, I'm, I have trouble staying focused anyway, and I do tend to ramble, as you know. In any event, I got really worried that she was going to somehow or other break the connection uh, and cut me off. So I picked her up and pushed her off fairly gently, animal rights people. But, uh, you know, she's a cat, so she digs her claws in. So she dragged all of my notes and the little notes I take to talk to you off. And all that hit the floor with a giant crash. So that's what happened on Friday. Uh, the cat is fine, by the way. As I said, she's extremely affectionate. We love her a lot. And I've moved a filing cabinet in front of the door this morning so she can't push the door. She must really like you, Vaughn, because cats get attached to people. Yeah, no, no. She's very attached to both Adorable. of us. It's quite nice that uh, Elise has loaned us her cat for a time. Uh, as you know, Simi, there's a grandson, and the grandson uh, won't leave the cat alone. Oh. So the cat's living with us for a while. <laughs> That's cute. Well, I guess if you can't have the grandson, you can have the cat for a little while, right? Yeah, no, she's fabulous. Yeah. Well, now we know. We know what happens if Vaughn gets interrupted. Uh, but we do have a lot of questions for you this morning because we know that uh, the, the foreign student cutback, the international student cutback that Ottawa announced a few weeks ago, we've been waiting to kind of find out what the impact is going to be here in BC. Yeah, and the BC government is still wrestling with this. It's a major problem because... Ottawa announced a 35% reduction in the number of foreign student visas, and they sent every province affected a rough number, but they also said it'll be prorated. The BC government didn't like the number they got, and they've gone back to the federal government seeking exemptions, particularly for areas where we have shortages of workers, so healthcare workers, for example, skilled trades, that sort of thing. BC is... They've been reluctant to say more than that about what it means, but it's clearly a huge issue. You may recall that when Premier Eby was explaining his reasons last week for pushing Selena Robinson out of cabinet as Minister of Post-Secondary Education, he said she had so much work to do repairing the damage of her remarks about Palestine 
that she wouldn't have time to deal with the enormous workload in the Ministry of Post-Secondary Education. We're waiting to find out who the new minister is, but I mean, whatever you think of the Premier's decision there, and there's been a lot of criticism of it, he's right about a huge challenge for the Ministry of Post-Secondary Education. Uh, Simi, there's, there's no way with the numbers that we've been provided that the system in BC could absorb a 35% reduction in foreign students without some huge implications for both the public and the private universities. The split is about 45%, 55%. So the private, 280 schools, they absorb about 55% of the international students, but the public universities do 45%. So they're going to take a hit as well. And of course, the reason it's a hit is because foreign students pay an awful lot more than British Columbians do to attend our colleges and universities and private schools. An awful lot of universities, including UVic, are already talking about budget cuts. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck with UVic last week. They just came out and said, okay, well, we got our pocket calculators out and uh, about a third of what we get here at UVic in uh, tuition is foreign students. Overall, it's more than 10% of our entire budget. So we're looking at a 13, uh, was it $13 million reduction in funding in the fall, unless the provincial government lines up and gives us the money. And David Eby got asked about this in one of his press conferences last week. And he said, oh, that's premature for you, Vic. We're still working on these numbers. They shouldn't be already talking about cutting their budget because we haven't figured out how we're going to deal with this. But that's, you know, UVic getting out there ahead of the other universities. I, I'm sure the financial officers at the other major BC universities have been working their calculators and they have a preliminary estimate of what this is going to cost them as well. Right. But this, I guess this is the time to apply pressure when you've got the provincial yeah. budget coming. That's a good point. I mean, the budget is coming. Uh, well, very, very soon now, the 22nd of February, we've already got our little registration forms uh, for the press gallery to be there in the budget lockup. And it's late to be making up the provincial budget. But as I said, you, you know, they're still wrestling with what these numbers mean. And they're also, the Premier has said this, they've gone back to the federal government and said, hey, we want some exemptions. We don't want you just whacking us with a 35% reduction. The province, as you know, Simi, has also said, now we recognize there's some really bad actors out there in the private schools, and we're going to crack down on them, and we're going to put them out of business. But they're doing that, but Simi, they, they can't possibly make private schools absorb the entire impact of this reduction. Right. But we should mention as well that great piece that Katie DeRosa has in the Vancouver yeah. Sun this morning. Yeah. Katie DeRosa has got a couple of examples in the paper of bad actors uh, went to the ministry and said, okay, give us some examples. And they gave us some examples. These are, you know, sort of storefronts. Uh, in one case, uh, the front door is papered over with letters from presumably some of its students, but also from provincial regulators saying, would you please respond to our mail? Your license has been suspended. Stop, stop advertising yourself. These are, these are some exceptionally bad actors. And I know that some of the legitimate private training schools are 
alarmed and feeling hurt that they're being blamed as bad actors too, because there's clearly a bunch of them out there that aren't. But this is an example of what the province is dealing with. When you look at the numbers in the story in the paper today by Katie DeRosa, what you also see, Simi, is that the crackdown is very small. The ministry doesn't have the staff to inspect all these places. It doesn't have the wherewithal to really put them out of business. They've suspended licenses in a few cases. Not surprisingly, the private colleges are in court fighting the suspension. So, and, and there's really nothing the province can do to prevent them from advertising overseas that if you come here, you'll get a business degree or whatever they're offering. And as you know, Simi, some people arrive here and they find there's nothing there except a locked up storefront uh, they're told, yeah, well, the classes are online. And meanwhile, you've spent a fortune to come here, find a place to live. And then you discover the credentials aren't even acceptable to most uh, higher education institutions anyway. And we are back with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning, working on a few kind of other loose ends that we've got to talk about. For instance, Premier David Eby, Vaughn talking about the media. Yeah, he started his news conference last Thursday with a statement of sympathy for the employees of Bell Media in the wake of those major layoffs that Bell announced last week. Uh, EB also spoke about the fact that uh, local, I think 21 local radio stations in BC are changing hands and there's concern that, you know, there might be layoffs there as well. Uh, yeah, the Premier's uh, statement was quite sincere, it struck me as, and of course it played well in the news media because we're all worried about what's going to happen to our colleagues there. But it's interesting, one reporter, you know, reporters ask the cheekiest things. Uh, one reporter asked the premier, was there anything he had to say more than just sympathy? For instance, he's got a provincial budget coming up. Was he going to do anything for local media, local radio stations, given his sympathies and the premier's sides? Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. He said, well, you know, the broadcast sector is federally regulated. That's true. If Ottawa wants to do something about concentration of ownership and companies not living up to what they're doing with federal subsidies and laying people off, that would be a federal option. And he moved on to other topics. But in fact, there is something the provincial government could do. And a provincial legislature committee unanimously suggested what that is uh, three years ago. And that is to offer a, a tax credit, a labor tax credit to the broadcast sector for the jobs it employs of people making, creating made in BC comment. And that's not a far-fetched idea, Simi, because the legislature committee pointed out there's a precedent. Provincial government offers enormous subsidies in the form of tax credits to the film industry. One of the reasons the film industry makes so many movies here, apart from beautiful BC scenery and trained staff and all the other things, is because the industry gets a giant tax credit worth a lot of money 
for the jobs it creates here for made in BC content. So the hmm. legislature committee said, you can do the same thing for the broadcast sector if you wanted to. My understanding is the provincial government so far has rejected that idea, saying pretty much deferring to Ottawa. So oh, the federal government wants to do that. But, you know, if you, if you think the tax credit for the film industry here is a good thing, and I think most British Columbians would agree it is, because it's one of the things that keeps the film industry here and a lot of jobs here, uh, you know, it's a fair argument that you could do the same thing for radio stations that produce made in BC comment, content, offer them, again, a tax credit tied to them actually doing that. Wouldn't just be a blank check. Hmm. Now, that is a pretty good argument. The budget's coming down later this month. I don't think I've heard no sign that the provincial government has bought this argument, but it was a fair question. Uh, the premier I think did so. something very sympathetic and got a lot of credit for it and deserved the credit. It was sympathetic. Several of the reporters covering that news conference thanked the premier for his words of sympathy. Fair enough. But, you know, if he really wanted to do something, exactly. He could. Or even just uh, how about eliminating that FOI fee? Ah, uh, yes, the famous $10 <laughs> <Right>? FOI fee. <laughs> you know, Simi, that was going to expedite yeah, uh, which the, it didn't, the processing right? of we FOI. We know it didn't. Oh, sometimes the government is just exactly. so funny, you know. They just say stuff that I don't think even they believe. <laughs> and in this case, they certainly didn't deliver that. The nope. delays for processing access to information in British Columbia are longer than ever, and requests from news organizations have dropped considerably because in this economic climate, a number of news organizations are not willing to put up even $10 for fishing expeditions. I know yeah. that sounds cheap, but True. that's what the government hoped for. They hoped there'd be fewer applications, and it worked. I know. Don't get me started on that. Okay. Uh, I also, because I quickly want to also ask you about something that the Victoria Police Chief had to say. Yeah, D Chief Delmanic, uh, he had to send a dozen and a half officers last Thursday night to the Victoria Film Festival for the first time to uh, keep the film festival on track. They were showing a documentary about Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, at one of the theaters near the legislature on Thursday night. Uh, an angry crowd of protesters showed up and seven or eight people seemed determined to keep people from even going in and seeing the movie, screaming, shouting, yelling, uh, anti-vaxxers. And uh, the, so the police showed up and protected the place and made sure the movie screening happened. Dr. Henry herself was there. In fact, our, our colleague Keith Balry was there watching the movie as well. Uh, he said it was a pretty, Keith told me, it was a pretty nasty, ugly crowd. Um, the, the police chief said, look, people need to chill out. He's, they've got Palestinian demonstrations here every week. He's dealing occasionally with Soji. And he says just people are so angry and so out of control. It's, yes, there has to be a police presence. And you might expect, I mean, it's also costing a fair amount of overtime for police officers, you know, a dozen and a half officers on a Thursday night when the regular patrols are out as well. Uh, it was a good comment. Uh, you just got a sense of the chief's frustration. I am sure he's not alone among chief, police chiefs in BC lamenting just yeah. how nasty some of the demonstrations have become. Oh, so true. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, sometimes a trend comes along and I wonder why. It seems so random. Well, that's how I feel about this TikTok trend about being a mob wife. Yeah, a mob wife. Like, why would someone want to glam up being the wife of someone associated with organized crime? Turns out there are a lot of reasons, and we're going to talk about them with Dr. Philia Alam, who's Professor of Comparative Organized Crime and Corruption at the University of Bath. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why Why would somebody want to do this? Why is it glamorous to be seen as a mob wife? So I think this is an interesting question. Um, I think in this particular moment in time, it's related to the Sopranos' 25th anniversary. So it kind of combines with celebrating what the Sopranos represents or represented uh, in our kind of cultural um, understanding of uh, the mafia. But in terms of why one would want to look like a mob's wife, um, I also have questions and doubts about why one would want to do that. So I'm also intrigued by this new TikTok trend. So what do you what do you see when you observe it on TikTok? Like what I see is uh, people who think it's like cool, people who think this is like they're all, they're glamming it up. They're making it look very attractive. Absolutely, absolutely. There is a stereotypes around these women who look a bit like bimbos who are wearing fur coats and big sunglasses and who are living the life. So it kind of represents women as making the most of money and looking good and being very frivolous. Okay. And so what kind of a, an impact do you think that has? on the young generation or on I I, I mean you know it's a trend it's a fashion trend they come and go Um, for those of us who study um, mafias in a bit more detail it's slightly more alarming because it kind of glamorizes and normalizes a world that is actually quite dark uh, dangerous and uh, a lugubrious place so I think that there's a kind of disjuncture between on the one hand commercializing and making money on something that's actually quite violent and quite nasty. Is there any way to fight back against this? Like, how do you convince people that, no, 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 you actually don't want to do this? I'm not sure that there's a way of fighting back. I think on, I think it's about raising awareness to understand that this is a fashion. This is a trend to kind of uh, uh, glamorize a world that is uh, ignored and that we kind of take for granted or don't really understand the dangers that it poses to, to society. So I'm not so much it's a fight back, but a kind of having these kind of conversations like we're having now to sort of say, you know, what's the difference between how we portray these women and the real world, the real life conditions of these women, right? I would even argue, Dr. Alam, that even when we portray these women, we're not portraying them particularly glamorously. Like, you know, Carmela Soprano did not have an easy life. She ran into a lot of issues. Any, you know, wife on The Godfather did not have an easy life. It was really hard. So what? why is it people are taking away something different from this? I, 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 I was, as I said, I'm, I'm intrigued and I kind of, when I look at the representation of these women in these TV programs, in these films, it seems to me that there is very much a kind of male gaze of looking at these women as rather passive or um, I over, over agitated women um, and not really trying to understand the complexities, as you say, of the existence 
of these women in this very kind of precarious world where, you know, there are values and there are episodes that can change your life very, very quickly. So I think it's about unpacking and recognizing that these women do exist, that they're not necessarily just interested in money and showing off, if anything but, and that actually there's a lot of hardship existing in that kind of world. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also wonder, you know, when when was there a focus on kind of mob wives or the wives of organized crime? Has this always been the case as long as we have known and talked about organized crime? I would argue that there's been no real interest. Um, I think that if we have a look at the the films that you've mentioned, the roles of women are actually quite small and marginalised and therefore we haven't really taken an interest. And if you have a look at the reality, even in judicial cases, in America, in Canada, but also in Europe, women tend to be sort of seen as non-entities, seen as not being able to be involved. So we really don't have an interest. And that's why when I talk about the male gaze, I think that people kind of project what they think women should be looking like rather than actually looking at them because we actually know very little about them. So then this trend on TikTok would almost be like an extrapolation of what we've actually seen. Yeah, and this 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 kind of uh, trend on, on on TikTok is a projection of what we would like these women to look like, right? It's it's like we want these women to look powerful and embodied, and and and, and sort of be kind of. Um, powerful kind of actors when in actual fact you know women have much more subtle roles I, I think the kind of tiktok fashion is is kind of demeaning to a certain extent as i said before because it kind of normalizes and glorifies this world but at the same time doesn't really capture the complexity of these women's existence as you say you know in the sopranos living in in, in that condition or in those in those situations is not straightforward and yet it's sort of made to look very simple and very straightforward in your study then of organized crime, is this, does this kind of attention, is it welcome or would they rather people not kind of glamorize their lifestyle? I think we've got different layers. This is quite an interesting but also complex question because organized crime is interested in power and money and not really being the focus of law enforcement attention. So all these kind of rather showy uh, 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 and kind of, um, how can I say, very kind of um, <clears throat> attraction and um, attention-seeking kind of uh, portrayals of women isn't really uh, what the mafia is about. The mafia is about kind of being hidden and submerged in order to have power and money. So these kind of representations of women perhaps are a distraction from that point of view. So that could be helpful. But on the other, it kind of undermines and doesn't necessarily understand what mafias are, are about. It is so fascinating. The things that people get interested in. Listen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Philia Alam, who's a professor of comparative organized crime and corruption at the University of Bath. It is so weird when you see this on social media the women, kind of young women, glamming themselves up to do this whole mob wife aesthetic. And I think I have never seen a show where it turned out well for the person who was the mob wife. So I don't get it. Just one of many things I think probably that I don't get on social media, right? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm going to talk now about being a victim of crime, and it is the worst feeling. Maybe it was having your car broken into or stolen even. That's coming up as well after our 7.30 news. 
Maybe your house was broken into. That's just such a feeling of violation, isn't it? Or Scott Schantz is with us now to talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of went down the rabbit hole on this yesterday, Simi. And I want to tell you a quick story. Um, When I lived in a condo building, we got broken into pretty regularly. So we got security cameras. And what we saw on the security cameras was these guys walking up to the door, swiping a fob and just coming in to our condo. And the strata was like, where did they get this fob? Hey, people who we've given all these fobs to, we need to keep really good track of them because somehow they got someone's fob and got into the building. That's what we all thought was happening. But it turns out that they were using a device similar to a flipper Zero. Now, what is this? Yeah, you've probably never heard of it. No one has heard of it, but it is a huge, huge deal. They're selling like 15,000 of these a week. The company is called Flipper Zero, and it's a gadget. The company who makes it, they describe it as a Swiss army knife for geeks, like for hackers. So the idea behind it is that it's this little, it looks like a Tamagotchi. You remember a Tamagotchi virtual pet with a little screen on it? Looks just like that. It's kind of cute. You can make get them in funky colors and stuff, but you can do all sorts of different hacker things with it. Essentially, anything that puts out a digital signal, like a fob or a cell phone, for example, it can interfere with that signal. Have a listen to this report from a news station south of the border. Lynn Mowdy likes being able to get in touch with his son at high school if he needs to. You know, they, they've had incidents uh, at school. It's why his son and many students bring a cell phone. But recently, a student brought a device to school that can interfere with that connection. That's pretty scary. It's called a Flipper Zero. Wilson County Schools confirms a student brought one to school last month and used it to shut off some cell phones in the classroom. So you hear that and you think to yourself, wow, this feels like hacker stuff, right? But the whole idea behind this thing, the Flipper Zero, is for it to be really, really easy for people who aren't hackers. And part of what makes it so easy is that everyone who has one uploads what they do with it to TikTok. Here's an example. How to set up Flipper Zero. Unbox the manual, cable, and flipper itself. Press the button to turn it on. Connect the device to your computer. It usually takes less than a minute. So there are videos like that. And that's it? All, it's that's so simple. It, it has one button and a little screen that walks you through whatever okay. you want it to do. And now, Why? Simi. Well, okay. So here's what it can do. Now, the idea behind it is, hey, I can use this as a, for example, TV remote. You have a bunch of different remotes in your house. This one is the size of a keychain. And anything that has a remote, like a garage door opener, a TV, a soundbar, any of those things, it can mirror all of those. Maybe if you're a strata manager, and people keep losing their fobs, you can reprogram fobs with it. There are things that people want to do um, positive with it. Like, for example, you can test how strong your Wi-Fi signal is. Any type of signal that's in the air, it can read it and also interfere with it. So what people have been doing with these, there's videos of this all over TikTok, opening gates at parkades, scanning people's fobs, copying credit cards, mirroring credit cards, changing prices at gas pumps, turning off public displays, hacking sound systems. Uh, It's been used at bank machines. It's been used to unlock phones. Here's one hacker talking about how he used it to set up a bunch of fake Wi-Fi addresses. Just listen to this. This right here is a Flipper Zero. I just created a bunch of fake networks. 
So all of these networks here, they probably appear to be legitimate, right? Yeah. But they're not. These are all fake networks? They're all powered by me. So as soon as you connect to any of those, I have your password, I have anything in between. That's one thing, that's just Wi-Fi. Is this how people are stealing information in airport? In an airport? Oh yeah, I mean, airport, Starbucks. Okay, I guess what I'm saying is could you create a fake Wi-Fi network with that thing that says, go, go, in flight one? I could do that here. You could do that with any name. But instead of that, what you do is you just scan lo the local area. You now I know all the network's names around here, and then I'll target all of them at the same time. You know, anyone that connects to a network is going to, you know, think it's their network, and they're going to connect to me instead. So some really scary stuff there. And as you may have uh, assumed, one of the things that this thing can do is copy car keys digital car keys. So there's been a lot of talk about auto theft in our country, and this is what they think is contributing to it. You can buy it online. It's really simple to use. You find a car key, you copy it, and now you have access to that car. And there's videos on TikTok showing you exactly how to do it. This is crazy. And I understand that Canada has moved to ban this. So Francois-Philippe Champagne has said that he's pursuing all avenues to ban this thing. But here's the thing, Simi. It's the size of a keychain. So it used to be available on Amazon. You could go on Amazon and buy it. It's 169 bucks, right? The company that makes it, Flipper Zero, is the name of the company. This is their only product. It was started by a group of guys on Kickstarter. They're like, hey, we're hackers and we want to teach other people how to be hackers because it's so fun. Look what you can do if you become a hacker. They say it's just a gadget. That's all they want it to be, a fun little gadget for people to play with. So I went to the Flipper Zero website, put in my address, couldn't get one shipped to Canada because they're trying to ban it here. However, if you go to flipperzero.com, the U.S. website, want to get it shipped to Point Roberts, 169 bucks, and it'll be there in two weeks. Also, go to Facebook Marketplace, type in Flipper Zero. There's hundreds for sale. You know, this makes me so paranoid, Scott, <laughs> that now I'm thinking I just want to walk around with my wallet all day long in a Faraday bag. You know what? I don't think that that's a bad idea. I know that sounds like um, like tinfoil hattie, but this it, the stuff that you can do with it, and to me, one of the good things that they're saying is that this is potentially exposing how at risk our security systems are. Like companies are coming to us and saying, hey, we'll put these swipe card systems in and make your building really safe, when in reality, it almost feels like we would be better off going back to standard keys. I feel like this too. I, I feel like that about a lot of things, like especially in cars. Like when I was shopping for a new car a year and a half ago, I was, I didn't like the fact that so many cars, there's no buttons, there's yeah. no knobs, anything anymore. It's all touchscreen. Yeah. And I think we've reached a point where we've almost gone too far in that direction. The car I ended up getting actually still had some buttons and knobs. Right. And I thought I'm just more comfortable with this. You know what this thing can't do? Cut a key. There you go. There you go. Maybe time to take a little bit of a step back, I think. I think so. Scary stuff. It Flipper is scary. zero if your kids ask I'm for it. I'm shopping Don't for a Faraday bag. Thank you for that, Scott. You so interesting. That is our Scott Shuns. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Is your car in danger of being stolen? And there's a car being stolen in this country every six minutes. I mean, vehicle theft has become such a problem that now we hear it being talked about at the highest levels, even by the prime minister, right? 
Here in BC, catalytic converter thefts are going up every year. I mean, people are having them stolen from cars that are sitting in their driveways right in front of their homes. We've all seen those videos. And it cost ICBC more than $14 million in 2022 alone. What is going on out there? Like, how did we get to this point? Well, Michael Rota is the president and CEO of the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Are we seeing this right across the country? Absolutely. There is uh, no doubt there's a concentration in Ontario and Quebec due to the size of the population and proximity of the Montreal port. Uh, however, this is, uh, particularly if you hold for population, an issue that's facing all Canadians. And so is it a different reason in different provinces? You mentioned Ontario and Quebec and access to the ports there. So those are obviously being shipped somewhere different than perhaps a car stolen here in B.C.? It, it is uh, in terms of uh, where it's being shipped from, but not in terms of you know what is driving the theft. Just across the country, we find that the uh, Canadian environment is, is very much a high-reward, low-risk environment for criminals. And our port authority and uh, jurisdictions complicate things and make it easier for the criminals to get those vehicles out of the country. Okay, so what do you mean by like low-risk, high-reward? So uh, the chances of detection are, are low. We, we are now seeing in some provinces, like in Ontario, $160 million investment in the specialized provincial auto theft team and prosecutors uh, tasked specifically with dealing with this issue. Um, in other provinces, we haven't quite seen that yet. So, you know, it's, it's much more a challenging environment for police, even as we see the numbers rising. And then at the ports, there's a variety of different authorities that, that are responsible, though primarily it lands, uh, the prim- primary respons- responsibility lands with the Canada Border Services Agency. They are under, understaffed, and we have just learned in a recent uh, auditor report, uh, undertrained. And, um, and additionally, they have not prioritized this issue. Okay, so with the port police situation, how much of a difference would that make if there were a change in how we do things at our ports? So of something that we've been advocating for for some time is a very minor change. It doesn't even require legislative change. It's just at best a, a regulatory change, and that is the way that we handle our bill of ladings. Currently, when a vehicle is exported, uh, they have up to 72 hours after the container has left the port and is on the high seas and out of our jurisdiction to make a final change. So the criminals, for example, could say when they uh, make the initial declaration that it's um, uh, something like uh, washing machines, and then when it's out on the high seas, oh, sorry, our bad, it's motor vehicles. And then, or if they even say both motor vehicles, they put a false VIN and then change it to the actual VIN numbers, that's the vehicle identification number. What we'd like to see is that the Canadian government align our practices of export with that of the United States, whereby you have to make those, if it's a vehicle, it has to be available, not necessarily inspected, but available for inspection 72 hours prior, and there's no changes. What you put on that bill of lading is the bill of lading at the start. So now there's some consequences if they're caught uh, not declaring what the contents of that vehicle are. So just a small change like that can have a massive dish, uh, uh, difference. And then getting CBSA to prioritize this as an issue, understanding, yes, it's important to keep bad things like guns and and drugs from coming into the country. But if you want to do that, you have to get the criminals where they're getting the funding. And one of the top three sources of revenue for uh, organized crime is auto theft. Okay, so when you hear, you know, the federal government saying we're going to do this, we're going to tackle this issue, like what did you think about all that? So the summit uh, last week was a great first start. It was really nice to see colleagues, both from policing, government, and industry together. It was an opportunity for networking and to start to work together to solve this problem. We also had an announcement from the RCMP that they are going to start within a week 
uh, reporting their stolen vehicle data to, to Interpol. Again, something we've been asking for for a better part of a decade. That's a welcome change. So there's already some positive momentum coming out of this, this summit. But the real, you know, the proof will be in the pudding in terms of do we see some federal leadership and federal coordination on this issue, which was absolutely required? And do we see the changes to the CBSA uh, priority list and resourcing so that they can, they can uh, address this issue at the ports? That remains to be seen. But, you know, we're hearing the right noises and I, and I remain cautiously optimistic. OK, but Michael, is there anything that we can do as the owners of these cars? that These are our vehicles and we certainly don't want to have them stolen. Like, what can we do? So absolutely. So um, you can do it. You can do a number of things. So, uh, you know, if you have a garage, park the vehicle in the garage. If you don't ensure that it's a well-lit area, um, if you have a, a fob, so a push start sort of keyless entry, you want to make sure that, well, actually read your manual. This is something I didn't even know. You can certain makes of models. You can actually turn your key off so it stops transmitting. Um, so read your manual if, if, if that's uh, available to you. If not, you can get these things like a Faraday bag or a little device that slips over the battery that stops it from transmitting when the keys are not being moved around. So little things like that to, to harden your vehicle from being stolen. Um, some people put in trackers and that can be helpful, uh, though uh, more helpful would be sort of a third party immobilizer. Immobilizers are already mandatory in vehicles, but having a third party one just makes it that much more difficult to steal. And then, I, as I said, just be aware, um, we have seen an increase in what I'm calling uh, violent car theft, so carjackings and home invasions. And so, uh, you know, uh, vigilance is the, the, the key of the day. You know, watch out for yourselves, watch out for your neighbors. You know, it's so frustrating, Michael, just hearing this, because as technology has gotten better, we would think that things like car alarms and immobilizers, all of those things that are installed into our cars would help solve this problem. But it just feels like the problem never goes away. So this is why it's, you know, the, the, the high reward, low risk uh, common is important. I, I really do believe it's an issue of enforcement. When we look at our top 10 stolen vehicles, they're actually seven to 10 times more likely or less likely rather to be stolen south of the border. Same vehicle, same technology. Um, I can tell you, having spoken to the manufacturers at the summit, and, and we do represent their um, the credit facilities for a number of manufacturers as an association, they're on uh, multiples of iterations, sometimes, you know, generation 10 of the technology, and it, but it's a cat, cat and mouse game. As, uh, you know, they change the standards, the criminals, you know, take the vehicles apart when a new vehicle comes, comes out, look at it, find new ways to steal it. And then the manufacturers, when a vehicle is stolen and recovered, they sit down with the police technologists and they sit and they, they look, okay, how did the criminal steal, steal a car? So there's this constant ebb and flow between, you know, the, the criminals and the manufacturers and police in terms of trying to keep, our, keep us safe and our cars from being stolen. Okay, what vehicles here? Like, what is the most stolen vehicle? So I don't have the list in front of me, but it tends, there is a correlation between the top selling vehicles and the top 10 stolen vehicles. So Honda and, and Toyota figure prominently on the list for certain models, like the Honda CRV, uh, Ford as well for the Ford F-150. But again, they're very popular vehicles, and so there's a reason that they're being targeted. I know, and so it's just the worst feeling in the world to have that happen to you. Michael, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Michael Rota, the president and CEO of the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association. Let's look this up, shall we? So what are the most stolen vehicles in Canada? 
Yes, the Honda CRV, number one. The Dodge Ram 1500 Series pickup truck is number two. And the Ford F 150, Michael mentioned that too, is number three. Uh, Lexus RX Series, Toyota Highlander, Honda Civic, Jeep Grand Cherokee, those are all in the top 10. Now in BC, even though the numbers are not as bad as what they're seeing in Ontario and Quebec, in fact, car thefts have gone down here the last couple of years. Police say we do need to be vigilant about this. They are concerned that that's a kind of a trend that is moving our way. And so these are all points that we need to be aware of. This is Mornings with Simi. What does it mean to be black in Canada? It's not the same as in the United States, that's for sure. It's not the same as growing up black in Ontario, for that matter, or even another part of BC. It can be a singular experience. That's actually what our next guest has written about. Morgan Campbell is an award-winning sports writer and now author of My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. And Morgan joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. Why did you want to write a book? Why did I want to write a book? That's a natural progression for, well, not for every journalist, but for uh, reporters, writers like me who are into, um, you know, at one end of the spectrum are the people that just like to get the scoops and get it fast and they don't care how well written the story is and at the other end of the spectrum are <laughs> people like me who like, I'm not that interested in scoops, I'm, un- I'm interested in covering new ground, yes. And uh, really getting deep into a story and flexing my writing muscles, but also just, you know, for the sake of the story. So it's a natural progression. I want to move to longer form or longer form uh, journalism and eventually uh, into books. And Morgan, when, easy, natural progression. when you looked around, then did you think, you know what? Nobody has really told my story or, or I, I can't I don't feel a similarity out there with my experience. Sort of. Um, in terms, one, I grew up with like a lot of really interesting characters. My mom, my dad, uh, my mom's mom, my dad's dad. The thing about my family and the way I describe this book to people is, you know, it's, it's about growing up black and American in Canada in a family where the two sides don't get along. So I grew up with all these really strong personalities, but also really long running bitter conflicts within my family that wound up spanning generations and spanning borders. So there's a lot of exploring that. But also I wanted to write if like from the perspective of black America, sort of a great migration story that takes one more step. So my, my, my grandparents and great grandparents came from the South. They came from Texas. They came from South Carolina, Arkansas, Mississippi, places like that came to Chicago as part of what people know now as the great migration. And then uh, my family is just, you know, it wasn't a migration, but it was just a family that moved across the border. So there's one more step in sort of uh, letting my black America know what it's like for people who, who, who kept going, who kept going North. And then from the perspective of like the black Canadian stories that get told, well, there are, there are not a ton of like, first generation uh, black Canadians who, with parents from the U.S. Like I didn't grow up with a lot of people like me. I, I definitely knew some and we all knew each other. We kind of shared this experience. Um, but I wanted to add the, stories like this to like the overall canon of black Canadian literature because they're fascinating stories, but they don't get told very often. That's right. It's kind of unique, right? So when yeah. you were growing up, did you struggle to find a belonging uh, not really, because I was good at sports. When you're good at sports, like it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. So like, true. You're always going to find friends. But at the same time, uh, yeah, you would, you would 
occasionally run into often as other black kids, um, you know, whose parents are from the Caribbean, because when you live in Ontario, you live in Toronto, that that's overwhelmingly what the black community is, is like, especially growing right. up in the eighties and nineties, first generation parents, mostly from the Caribbean, uh, sometimes from Africa, occasionally you'd run into some Nova Scotia. There are some people from Southwest Ontario, but, you know, and, and I, I try not to judge folks like that too harshly because they were young and they were still trying to make sense of all these different, uh, cultural uh trends too and so it just it didn't make sense to a lot of caribbean canadian kids that even existed how where are you from how can you not be from an island how can your parents not be from an island and how again it's like running on a hamster when you would have these discussions with people but again back then it was an uh, annoying but like i don't make bigger value judgments on people that ask me those questions because they were young too and they're also still trying to figure it out what did sports do for you? you? You mentioned that, you know, that helped you fit in. What what did sports do for you? Um, again, I'm a sports writer, and there's, so people that know me as a sports writer are going to read this book and kind of expect sports to become, sports to, to serve as one of, you know, the subplots, uh, and it does. <laughs> and what it did for me was, uh, one, you know, like in, in my first few years in football, I was not very good. I was okay, but I was not good. But, like, as I aged... You know, they hit puberty, stuff like that. Like for a lot of people, uh, I got better. And so I got to the point, you know, I was getting recruited by a lot of Canadian schools and a handful of American schools. And what football did for me was, uh, (laughs) even though it turned out not to be this way, but like as a 17-year-old, I thought football is my future and football is the way I'm going to take care of my family, the football. Like I'm going to go to the NFL, sign a big contract, retire my mom, get everyone a big house, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously did not turn out that way, but what it did do for me was um, sort of open uh, broader worlds to me. Like I had never been to the university of Guelph, but I had a football camp there and I got to see what universities look like and what the food tastes like in the dorm. And then the next summer I went to the university of Michigan and I found out that all the dorm food is not as good as the dorm food at the university of Guelph. And I wouldn't have known that without football. <laughs> that I mean, it opened your doors. That's such a good way of illustrating the way it opened doors for you, right? Um, yeah. and the book also allowed you to tell stories too. And one of the ones that you tell in paying tribute is uh, to your grandfather, Claude Jones. Tell me about him. Yes. Yeah. My grandfather was a musician. He's basically the reason my family wound up coming to Canada. Long story short, he, he was born and raised in Chicago, played jazz piano in the even back to the 40s, 50s. 60s um wasn't famous but was well known and a lot of like your favorite jazz musicians would have known him they would have come across each other um on the job like the, the oscar petersons and sarah vaughn's of the world and so um he gets to the point he wants to leave chicago like mid 60s he's tired of chicago thinks of going to san francisco but then gets recruited to come play he gets headhunted essentially to come play in Toronto. He's very skeptical about coming to Canada. He didn't know anything about Canada, even though he knew Oscar, like he didn't really internalize anything about Canada. But my grandmother talks him into it and he falls in love with Toronto and he winds up uh, bringing my grandmother. She falls in love with Toronto. So they moved to Toronto in 1966. My parents followed them in 1969. Yeah. And if he was anything other than a musician, or even if he was like a more famous musician who was making like, huge money in the U.S. and would not have had an incentive to come to Canada. Like, everything else that happens in my family unfolds differently, but it was that kind of confluence of circumstances that uh, gave rise to, like, the rest of our story. 
Hmm. Morgan, do you think that we're better at understanding each other today compared to when you were growing up? You talked about, you know, sometimes not being able to relate to other kids who may have been black, but from a completely different background. Are we are we better at hearing other people's stories today, do you think? No. (laughs) No, really? (laughs) Not really. Uh, I think... I can't speak for Vancouver because I didn't grow up here. It's only my second time coming to Vancouver. Uh, Toronto is a lot more multicultural now. Um, and there is a lot more like cultural cross pollination, right? Like, and that's a beautiful thing. Like, where else in the world, but Toronto or maybe Vancouver, are you going to get jerk chicken shawarma poutine? Right. Delicious. <laughs> because of all, right, cause <laughs> I haven't all tried it, but it sounds wonderful. <laughs> but at the same time, like from the perspective of, uh, uh, somebody with deep black American roots, like what I see a lot of is um, the same thing I've always seen, which is people from different cultural groups, non-American black people, but also different white people, whoever, who like to, on the one hand, tell black Americans they have no culture, but on the other hand, uh, appropriate, steal, borrow from the culture. Um, That to me has not changed. That has actually only accelerated with the advent of social media in the sense that when black folks come up with a slang term, uh, white people can, cherry pick it because they see it on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And it's, it's kind of sped up the pace of cultural appropriation, which is very different from like having a genuine understanding of someone else's culture and where they're coming from. Hmm, so interesting. Well, I, we have to read the book then to understand better. <laughs> Morgan, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> no problem. Have a good day. That's Morgan Campbell. Morgan is an award-winning sports writer and author of My Fighting Family Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us.